Well, don't you imagine you're visiting an, an old friend back east for a couple of weeks, and your friend's not a Christian, but he or she agrees to visit some churches with you. So on your first Sunday, you visit a traditional older church, and during the music worship time, they, they start blasting some songs on the organ, some classic hymns, and they play a few songs on piano as well. You notice their songs are theologically rich, they're filled with deep biblical truth, but as you look around at the people worshiping, what do you see? Well, you see mostly cold, lifeless people. No one is singing, at least not loudly. A few people are mouthing the words, but no one's singing like they really mean what they're singing. Emotion is absent from their worship. Everyone is standing there like tombstones. I mean, the, the words of these songs are glorious. They're telling of God's glory, his truth, his salvation. But the magnificence of these Songs is not being reflected in the heart attitude of the people. The songs call on them to remember, to celebrate, to worship the Lord, but it looks more like they're at a funeral. Now, if you then question your unbelieving friend, what he or she thought about this worship, how do you think they might respond? Your friend would probably think, well, it just seemed kind of empty, kind of blank, a little bit sad, a little bit depressing. This is, a, this is an example of cold dead orthodoxy. The people in that church claim that God is real. They claim to have the truth, yet they're living and singing as if God is not real and the truth isn't true. The joy of their supposed salvation doesn't come out in their singing and in their worship, so their worship seems disingenuous, artificial, and phony. I mean, in all, would you be happy taking your friend to a church like that? Is that a compelling witness? Does that sound like true worship to you? No. Well, the next Sunday, you decide to take your friend to another church to visit. This time you visit a contemporary church filled with young 20-somethings and 30-somethings. And the worship time there, it's like a rock concert. They're blasting music. You can't even hear yourself sing, let alone other people. There are literal spotlights on all the band members. The songs themselves are really catchy tunes, like pop songs you'd hear on the radio. But you notice that the lyrics are pretty shallow. Mostly like love songs. In fact, most of the songs sound like they could be sung about a girl instead of God. As you look around the room this time, you see quite a different picture. The people aren't lifeless. Just the opposite. They are high on emotion. But in a bizarre way, you find. People are raising their hands, clapping. But then you see some people dancing around randomly across the room. Others are just running up and down the aisles, hollering, yelling. You see some people start to roll around on the floor bursting into uncontrollable laughter, and some people are uttering ecstatic phrases. You don't know what's going on. It looks like everyone's in a trance. They're, they're lost in this moment. They're definitely feeling it, though. Later, you question your unbelieving friend again. You ask them what he or she thought about that worship experience. And most likely, your friend would probably respond that these people seem like they're mad. This is just doesn't seem right. These people are behaving like crazy people. The behavior you might expect from a New Age cult or a rave or something. I mean, again, is this a compelling witness? This, In this case, I would say yes and no. Yes, actually, this church's worship is compelling to those in the world because it so resembles the world. This is where our culture is at. And a lot of the worship that passes at many churches could fit right in at Coachella or these music festivals. They're styled totally according to the world, and therefore many in the world find such Service is compelling. It's what they're used to. 
However, they're compelling for the wrong reasons. Hence, no, such church services are not really compelling witnesses. This isn't true worship. Emotionalism and experientialism detached from the truth is it's not true worship. You could experience the exact same emotional high at a concert, and that doesn't mean they're truly worshiping. Other religions can evoke the same emotional fervor. That doesn't mean they're truly worshiping. Overall, both these churches have worship wrong. And they would leave the unbeliever in their midst with totally the wrong impression of who God is and what his worship is all about. Now that said, regarding these little two scenarios of these churches I've given to you, we've actually been asking the wrong question. In reality, when it comes to worship music in the church, it doesn't matter what your unbelieving friend thinks or likes. That that really shouldn't enter the equation when evaluating worship. What really matters is what God thinks. What does God think about the worship in those churches? Is this true worship in God's eyes? Would God approve? Those are the questions we really need to be asking. And I would argue that both ends of this worship spectrum, from the cold, dead, orthodox church, they've got the truth, but they're devoid of emotion, to the contemporary hip church that has all this experience, but they're lacking truth, both are not true worship. Both have missed the mark of true worship as defined by God. It doesn't matter how many people fill the pew in the morning or feel like they're worshiping. It matters what God says and how God defines true worship. And that's something you need to have figured out. What does true worship look like to God? This morning we're going to try and figure out. A little while ago I started a brief series on worship wars here on Sunday morning. Normally we're going through the Gospel of Mark on Sundays. We're taking a little detour to cover this this issue, this important topic of music worship in the church. What does the Bible say it looks like to musically worship God? What is true worship to God? So we've been trying to figure out over the past couple weeks. It's an important subject because over the past 50 years, music has been such a contentious and divisive issue in the church. This phenomenon has been labeled the worship wars, like you know, and That war has not been without casualties. Many churches lie splintered and divided over issues like instruments and type of music and song choice. It shouldn't be the case, but it is. Therefore, we need God's word to clearly direct us and correct us so that we might avoid such divisiveness. And I should point out my motivation for this little mini sidetrack, this mini-series, Namely that, as you know, we've encountered some of our own little changes in music here at our church on Sunday mornings. And thankfully I can report we haven't experienced any worship wars, but that's why I'm preaching on it, to hopefully keep it that way. You know, as a pastor, this pulpit is my greatest shepherding tool. So as a pastor, what better way to shepherd a congregation through a divisive issue than by preaching on it? And so here we are. In the first message, we uncovered the root cause of division in these worship wars. What it really boils down to, it's it's not really doctrine for most. It's tradition and preference. Church tradition, personal preference drives the division for most people. But we found these are not legitimate reasons for dividing, for destroying the unity of God's church. Still, tradition and preference are strong forces in people's lives. So how do we get around them? How do we overcome them? We tackled this in the second message. The path to peace in these worship wars comes through submission and humility, we found. When it comes to non-doctrinal issues, God calls us to set aside our personal preferences and to submit 
to his word, to one another, to our leaders, that brings peace. And that's a hard thing to do. That requires a lot of humility. The worship wars have been fueled by pride and self-interest, but if you would, like God says, seek the interests of others ahead of yourself, a peace wouldn't be far off. Anyway, I would encourage you to go download part one and part two to this little worship series in case you miss them. Today we're getting to part three, and I want us to drill down into this fundamental concept of is true worship. Now let's talk about what is true worship itself. What does it look like? What does that mean? What does it consist of? I mean, a lot of churches do a lot of different things. And I want to know what, what's true, what's false, what's right, what's wrong. According to God, I'm not interested in what's popular or what draws a crowd. I want to know what, what does God think? How does God himself define worship that pleases him? Shouldn't that be what we want to know, That what we actually care about? How does God define true worship? And today we aim to find out. A good place to start, just to get you going, is a simple definition of worship itself. I mean, what does it mean to worship in general? Well, the word worship means to ascribe worth to something. Worship is an action where you are declaring something to be worthy, to be valuable, honorable. It can take many forms. You can delight in something. You can enjoy it. You can praise it. You can sing songs about it. You can give to it. You can sacrifice to it. And so on. Basically, in some way, you are declaring some object to be supreme in your life. You are worshiping it. Now, of course, we know that no object is worthy of such worship except for God. Because God alone is supreme. He is the one worthy of our worship. So already we can make an obvious distinction between true and false worship. True worship will be focused on God. Everything else is false worship. Now that's kind of obvious, I think, to you. But keep that simple distinction always in the back of your mind because it's all too easy for other things to steal our heart's affections away from God. Especially with modern worship as we know it in the 21st century, it's, it's so easy to find your, yourself in your heart exalting that cool worship leader instead of God. And that would not be true worship, would it? Well, first off, true worship will have God as its object. That's kind of obvious. But is that it? I mean, is there anything more we need to take into consideration when we're trying to define true worship? Well, yes. Just in talking about true worship, I bet some of you have thought of already you've already thought of a verse, a key verse pop into your mind, a key passage that talks about true worship. And that passage will be found in John chapter four. If that's what you had in mind, you had it right. Because in John chapter four, Jesus himself defines true worship for us. Now that's nice. That that sounds pretty convenient, and we're trying to find out what is true worship in the eyes of God. There's a passage where Jesus himself tells us how God defines true worship. So that sounds like it's going to be a watershed passage. If we're going to try and find out about true worship, we're going to need to go there and study that passage. So let's let's do that. If you haven't already, turn to John chapter 4. And what does Jesus say? How does Jesus define true worship before God? I mean, you, you probably know the verse. Even if you don't know the reference, you, I bet you've heard it before. John 4:24 Jesus says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You've heard it, you know it, I bet. 
Everyone knows this verse. Everyone uses this verse to justify their music worship practices. However, I ever so rarely hear people using this verse correctly. This has to be one of the most abused verses in all of Scripture, especially when it comes to music issues. But, you know, we can't ignore this verse because Jesus himself is telling us how God defines worship. So if we're out to discover God's God's concept of true worship, we need to contend with this passage and get it right. It, It shouldn't be that hard to figure out. Jesus, he's being pretty clear But there's so much confusion surrounding this verse. You ask 10 different people, what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? You might get 10 different answers. And surely this accounts for a large measure of the confusion and the false worship out there. But we want to dive in. We want to figure out what Jesus is really getting at when he says true worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So let's read these two verses, verse 23, 24 again, how Jesus is defining true, true worship. He says in verse 23, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So it, It's a significant verse. You can already tell. He's telling us this is the picture of true worshipers that God is seeking. But here's the problem with these two verses, if you didn't already see it. These verses don't tell us in themselves what it means to worship in spirit and truth. The verse doesn't tell us what that actually means. That's kind of important, but we're left wondering, like, what does he mean by spirit? Is he talking Holy Spirit? Does he mean our spirit? What is truth? Is he talking about something specific? Does he have something specific in mind or truth in general? It's really essential to get right because Jesus doesn't say, you should worship in spirit and truth. You'd be nice. No, he says, you must worship in spirit and truth. There's no other option. This is a non-negotiable. He's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, true worshipers, you're over here in spirit and truth. Everyone else, you're over there and you're a false worshiper. This is a a serious, exclusive claim he's making. True worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Not either or, both and. But what does he mean? It's not enough simply to state your opinion. We want to know what does Jesus mean. And in this case, the answer, it's not found in the text. It's found in the context. The surrounding verses, you've got to know what he's talking about. This is where most people go wrong. They just pluck this one verse out of its context. They use it however they want to use it. But they ignore the context which gives this verse its meaning. And that's where they go wrong. That's why there's so many wrong views and and confusion out there. But we're not going to make that mistake. So we want to get to this verse. We want to find out what it means. But we're not going to start in verse 23. We're going to start in verse 1 of John chapter 4. So let's let's do that. Go back to verse 1. and We'll go through this quickly, but just so you can see what, what what's the situation here, what's the context of this verse. John 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you know your Holy Land geography, you know verse 4 already catches you off guard. Jesus was traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. 
And back then, there were three different routes you could take to go from south to north. One along the Mediterranean coast, one right up the middle through Samaria, and one through the east along the Jordan River. And you would know back then, if you know anything about the Jews, they would never pass through that middle route through Samaria, even though it was a quicker journey by sometimes three days. But they would not go there because they hated the Samaritans and they would not risk being defiled by them. But here in verse 4, it says Jesus had to pass through. Now, in a sense, he had three options. He could have taken different routes. But in another sense, it seems like Jesus is aware that he has a divine appointment with a woman at a well. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So here's Jesus, and you know he's fully man, so being in the heat of the day, he's tired, he's thirsty. He makes his divine appointment, though, right on time, and he encounters none other than this Samaritan woman. Now, verse 24, where we're going, it's in the context of his conversation with this woman. So it would behoove you to get to know a thing or two about this woman and her background. She's a Samaritan. What do you know about the Jews and the Samaritans? Well, first, who are these Samaritans? They were a people group very similar to Jews, but a few key differences. Now, back in 722 B.C., the ten northern tribes of Israel were all taken captive to Assyria. King of Assyria came in, conquered them. He took all the inhabitants of the land and he deported them to his land. And he brought in Assyrians and he populated them in Israel. It's a common tactic by conquering kings. You, you conquer them, you get rid of the people, you bring in your own people, and you, you've taken over the land. However, the poorest of the Jews were left behind in the land because he didn't want them. And over time, they intermingled with the newcomers and it created this hybrid mix of Judaism and paganism. And the, the offspring, they were the Samaritans. They're from the city of Samaria, their primary city, and they were half-breed Jews. Half Jew, half Gentile, half pagan. And they were shunned by the pure Jews. You fast forward to 586 B.C., that's when the southern kingdom was exiled and conquered. Jerusalem, the temple were destroyed. They were shipped east for 70 years. Now after 70 years, they came back. To Jerusalem. They started to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And when that happened, the Samaritans, they asked if they could help rebuild the temple. Because remember, the Samaritans, they were Jews originally who never left the promised land. But the pure Jews in Jerusalem said no. They, had, they wanted nothing to do with those half-breed Jews, those half-Jew, half-Gentile people. And ever since then, there's been massive hatred and enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. By around 400 BC, the Samaritans had fully developed into their own unique ethnic group with pretty much their own religion. They had become monotheistic once again. Eventually, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim to stand in contrast to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. They're very similar to the Jews, like very similar competing religious systems, but they had a unique, some unique beliefs. Similar to the Jews, they believed in the one true God, the God of Abraham. They also believed in the Torah as the word of God. That's the first five books of the Bible, but that's it. That's all they believed in. 
In other words, they believed that God's words were only found in the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and nothing else, whereas the rest of the Jews believed in Genesis through Malachi, the whole Old Testament. The Samaritans also believed that Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, was God's chosen sanctuary. They even had a different form of the Ten Commandments that highlighted Gerizim as the true place of worship. And you might wonder, all this emphasis on Mount Gerizim, what's so special about that mountain? This is extremely important because Jesus and this woman are going to talk about that mountain. The Samaritans believed that Mount Gerizim was the true place of worship, whereas the Jews believed that Jerusalem, the temple, was the true place of worship. A little more background. When the Jews entered the Promised Land, the very first time... God gave them a ritual to perform. He wanted half of them to go to Mount Gerizim and the other half to go to Mount Ebal. They're kind of opposite one another. And half the Jews on Mount Gerizim were to pronounce all the blessings that God promised on those who kept his law, while all the Jews on Mount Ebal were to pronounce all the curses that God promised for those who neglected his law. Well, later the Samaritans, they basically took this to mean that Gerizim... That must be God's place of blessing. It's God's mountain of blessing. It must be the place of true worship. And since they rejected the rest of the Old Testament, they, of course, rejected God's later revelation, which revealed that God had chosen Jerusalem to be his city for his temple. So they think Mount Gerizim, that's the original true place of worship. Now, Just stay with me. Hold on to all this background. Let's get back to John chapter 4. That's all going to come up because now we see Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman about Mount Gerizim. And when it gets to that point, it should take on hopefully a new meaning for you. Let's keep reading Christ's interchange with this woman. So we get to verse 7. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see the double whammy here. Jesus, he's a Jewish rabbi, and he's speaking to a woman and a Samaritan woman. That just didn't happen. But verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Here Jesus is offering this woman living water, eternal life, salvation. You know that. She did not. She wasn't getting it. She just thinks he's got some hidden well, some super well or super water. She doesn't have to draw water anymore. She doesn't get it. He's trying to lift her thinking from the physical to the spiritual, but she's not computing. She's not picking up in Christ's offer of salvation, 
So Jesus changes tactics and he decides to convict her of her sin to show her her need for this living water. In verse 16 he says to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Here Jesus combines some divine knowledge with the seventh commandment to convict her of her sin and adultery and expose her need for salvation, for living water, for eternal life. Now this is tragic. This is a huge text. It's just screaming to be preached on. There's so much here when it comes to evangelism, but this is not our focus. There's so much, but we have to just move on. But you get what's going on here. This interchange back and forth between them. This woman, though, she feels a conviction. He has convicted her of her sin, which he knows about. But instead of repenting and believing, she dodges the issue and she steers the conversation away from all that stuff. Like, let's forget about that. And she brings up this sticky theological debate of the day. And it's found in verse 19. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she says, almost out of nowhere, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, And you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. So I see what she's doing. Instead of asking Jesus for more living water, like, I need that. I am an adulteress. I need that life. Instead of that, she just changes topics. And she engages Jesus into a debate over the location of true worship. Hey, he seems to be a prophet. He just revealed this knowledge to her. Maybe he'll have the answer. And so look, where is it? Where's the place of true worship? So she's changed topics, now we are too. Now she's talking about worship. And so she basically is asking, where, where, is it, where is it located? Is it Mount Gerizim? That's where they were. Is it Mount Gerizim? Or is it Jerusalem? Where's the place of true worship? Hopefully this interchange now is going to make more sense that you've got that background with Jews and Samaritans and Mount Gerizim. Well, how do you think Jesus will respond? Well, we find it starting in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here we come to our verse. You see now a little more of the context, where it takes place, what brings it up. And Jesus says very clearly again, true worship must be in spirit and truth. But you're still probably wondering, okay, but I'm still not quite sure what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Did he say it? Yes, he did. He, he told us what it means. Did you pick up on it? It's back in verse 21. Let's start there. Go back to verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And you see his concern in this verse. It's, it's the true location of worship. He's talking about the true location of worship. And the point he's making is that very soon... No one is going to have a monopoly on the true location of worship. It's not going to be Gerizim, and it's not going to be Jerusalem either. 
So get this, just keep this in mind. Christ's first concern with this woman is over the true location of worship. The true location of worship. Secondly, verse 22, he goes on, he says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. What's his concern here? Now it's with the true content of worship. The true content of worship. Remember, the Samaritans, they limited God's word in the Old Testament to just the first five books. And in addition to that, they changed some of what God's word says. So when you change God's word or you omit God's word, you you change God. And so the Samaritans were not worshiping according to truth, but according to ignorance. No, but Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the Jews, they have it right. At least they have the truth. They have the true revelation of God, and therefore they have at least the ability to worship the true God. So understand, verse 22, his concern is the true content of worship. Verse 21, the true location of worship. Verse 22, he addresses the true content of worship. And then now we get to verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And you see the contrast that he's painting here. He says, verse 23, but, but in contrast to what he just said in verse 21, verse 22, God is right now looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. And by setting up this contrast, Jesus, he's here addressing those two concerns. Concern one was the true location of worship. Concern two was the true content of worship. And so here's, here's his point. Where is the true location of worship? It's not Gerizim. It's not Jerusalem. It is the Spirit. The Spirit is the true location of worship. And what is the true content of worship? It is what he calls the truth. The truth. So to worship God in spirit and truth means to worship God in the right location, namely the spirit, and according to the right content, namely the truth. It's all about worshiping the right God in the right place. Now, I hope you're starting to get it. Let's take this a little bit further. Jesus says God is spirit, meaning that God is everywhere. He's drawing on God's omnipresence. God's everywhere. God is not confined to a single location be it Mount Gerizim or the temple in Jerusalem. God doesn't live in the temple. Rather, God wants his people to worship him wherever he may be found. And where's that? Everywhere. Everywhere. That's what it means to worship God in spirit. Spirit, in verse 24, is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. Most likely your translation's got that right. It's a little s in verse 24, rightly so. This is a reference to man's spirit, your inner self, your inner spirit, your heart. And so put it another way, where is the true location of worship? It's not on a mountain. It's not in a temple. It's in your heart. That's what it means. God wants true heart worship. And that means true worship should take place anywhere you are. Worship should happen everywhere you go. That's what his point is here. Completely contrary to this woman's false understanding about the true place of worship, God wants his people worshiping him all places, all times, just wherever they go from their heart. 
And secondly, now to worship in truth means to worship God according to knowledge. It means you have to get God right. The Samaritans got God wrong, hence their worship was false. If it's not according to the truth, it's not worship. You cannot worship God in falsehood. Rather, the worship in truth is to worship God according to his character and his deeds revealed in Scripture. Only through God's word can you gain a true insight into the true God and therefore worship him in truth. So putting it all together now, Jesus is teaching that true worship, it's not about the externals. Rather, it takes place in the heart. Jesus here is defining worship as inward, not outward. That doesn't mean there won't be outward expressions at times. There will. But what God cares about above all is your heart. Worship takes place primarily in the spirit, in the inner man. That's where God is looking. And if he doesn't see true affection, true love, true worship for him in your heart, it doesn't matter what kind of external motions you're going through. It's not worship. This already highlights a key difference between true and false worshipers. Anybody can raise their hands and clap and sing loudly and dance around, even cry, get emotionally worked up. You see all these same externals at a concert or among other religions. But emotional fervor is not the defining mark of true worship. We are not shunning emotions. We'll get to them later. But we are saying that worship, it's not about the externals. It's about the heart. It originates from the heart, the inner man, the spirit. Worship is where you, in your inner self, you come to value God above all else. You esteem God. You love him. You submit to him. You desire him. You exalt him in your heart. And if that's not taking place in your heart, if God is not supreme in your heart, sing all the songs you want, wave your hands, dance around, you're not worshiping. You're not worshiping at all. So first we learn from Jesus that God prioritizes our heart of worship. We need a spirit or a heart of worship. Where do you get that? Where do you get a heart of worship? That's where the truth comes in. What are our hearts like on their own apart from God? After the fall, naturally, our hearts are fallen, corrupt, and wicked. That's what the Bible says. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Jesus said in Mark 7.21, For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, so on. See, on our own, we don't have hearts of worship. That's the problem. We do not have hearts that want to worship God. We worship self. On our own, we have hearts of rebellion and sin. That's after the fall. That's us now. And that's our problem. So look, naturally, the last thing you want to do is listen to your heart. Your heart will deceive you. Rather, biblically, if you want a heart of worship, you need to speak to your heart. Speak what? Speak the truth. The truth. Because isn't that what God uses to change our hearts and to instill worship in our hearts? Isn't that what he uses? He uses the truth. Biblically, hearts of worship are always derived from hearts that have been changed by God's truth. 
And that's why in Scripture, true worship is always seen to come in response to truth, the truth of who God is or what he has done. There's some, some truth of, of God. When a person hears the truth of God and believes the truth of God, then God is now enthroned on their heart and they can truly worship from the heart. This even more fundamentally separates true worshipers from false worshipers. Do you realize that unbelievers can never, by definition, worship God? You get that? By definition, they they can't worship. In their hearts, they don't believe the truth. They don't submit to the truth. Therefore, their hearts are still in rebellion to God. God is not king in their hearts. They're king. They still worship self. Sure, unbelievers can have emotional experiences, even in a church setting. Absolutely. But that's not worship. Until their hearts are submitted to the Lord by faith, they can't be true worshipers. And that heart change will only take place when they submit to the truth. This is why Jesus said, you need both. It's not an either or. You need spirit and truth. And truth. Therefore, salvation is the starting point for true worship. When a person responds to the truth of God and the gospel and their hearts are changed, they can worship. And even after salvation, worship still takes place in response to the truth. You can kind of think of it this way. Truth is the coal in the furnace of your heart. If you're born again, You're alive. You're on fire. You have a fire in your furnace. You are alive. But how do you increase the intensity of the flame? Well, you add some coal. Add some truth. If your heart furnace is devoid of truth, you should expect a small, weak flame. But if you want to see the flames of true worship fan up in your heart, add truth. Fill your heart with truth. That's what God uses to invoke our souls. This explains the whole book of Psalms, by the way. The Psalms, as you know, is Israel's worship songs. And find me one Psalm that is lacking in significant truth, either of who God is or something he's done. You're not going to find one. Rather, the psalmists, they know their mission as lyricists, songwriters, they are speaking truth to our hearts, and it will be set to music later, but that truth confronts our hearts, changes our hearts, and produces affection for God in our hearts, and that results in worship. So to bring it all together now, what is true worship as God defines? Well, Jesus tells us those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth, which is to say you must have truth-informed, heart-driven worship. You can put it that way, truth-informed, heart-driven worship. It's a significant conclusion. And it's meant, what Jesus says here, it's still meant to guide our worship philosophy and practices today. This is a defining passage where we should learn, we should learn from Jesus how we are to worship whatever we do today. And along those lines, with the little bit of time we have left, let's consider that. Let's consider how we can facilitate this type of true worship in the church, in the things we do as a church keeping in mind what we've learned from Jesus. Specifically, let's apply this to, of course, you know, music and singing. Now, please, I don't want you to associate worship only with singing. 
Singing is just one way we worship the Lord. It's not the only way. But when we gather corporately, it's what we think of most. So let's talk about our singing and our music and worship. We want true worship to guide our, our singing time. We want our singing to be done in spirit and truth, right? We want heart-driven, or rather truth-informed, heart-driven singing worship. Now, you notice one thing, though, that's missing from that equation? It's the musical style. It's a musical style. Not to say that musical style is unimportant. It's, it's important. We'll, we'll, we will still get to that later. Music matters. But it's nowhere near the driving force behind true worship. It doesn't make or break true worship. Never do you find musical style or instruments even involved in a discussion about true worship in the Bible. You'll never find a verse that says, you know, true worship is only according to a 4-4 music speed or whatever it's called, time scale. The Bible never says true, true worship must be done with stringed instruments. It's never even in the discussion. See, it's not about the externals, remember? And music is an external, right? Externals do matter, but they're the fruit, not the root. The root is truth-driven, heart-informed worship. I got that backwards. Truth-driven, truth-informed, heart-driven worship. It's a mouthful, even for me. So let's think, you know, in our corporate worship times, how do we facilitate that kind of worship? Well, we should be less concerned about what beat to play and more concerned about what truth to employ. How do you inspire heart worship? We want to shovel coal into the fire. We want truth. We need to deploy truth. We don't need to manipulate people's emotions through trickery. We just need the truth. In worship, we're trying to facilitate a work of the spirit, not of the flesh. So why would you resort to means of the flesh? Just let the spirit do his work. He works through the word and people who've been born again. So just pour some truth out there in a pleasing tune and the spirit will work. That's how God works. So biblically, this is the priority. When it comes to music worship, the priority is on the truth value of the songs we sing, not the musical value of the song. Again, not to say that the musical value doesn't matter at all. It does, but the priority is on the truth value of the song. When it comes to music worship, sadly, too many people today, they're too prone to say, you know, I can only worship with this style. i got to have this style. I can only worship God with drums. I need that beat. It just makes me feel like I'm worshiping. Or I can only worship with piano. I need that classical sound. It's just it's holy to me. These people are not focusing on the truth content of what they're singing. They're just worried about the musical medium that delivers the, the song. It's really, though, not all that different from the Samaritan woman saying, I can only worship on this mountain. I've got to be right here or else I can't worship God. People still have their mountains, and God's not on your mountains. He's everywhere. It should be the exact opposite, though. You should say, I can only worship with the right truth content. Like, I need a song that's going to speak God's truth to my heart. That's what my heart needs. My heart is, is, is cold. I need God's truth to invigorate me and to remind me of who he is, what he's done for me. Then my heart will worship. Musical style doesn't matter that much, but the truth does. And that's why in the New Testament there are no verses commanding teaching on given music styles. But there's a lot of verses telling us the priority of the truth in our lives and in our worship. And if you have the right truth, it will produce the right heart. 
And you should be able to worship God according to most any musical style or instrument. I can worship with piano. I can worship with guitar. I can go to Africa to a tribe of believers with their native music. I can worship there. I can worship a cappella. These are merely external considerations. But if your spirit and your truth are there, worship will follow. And now we can finally make a, a real, getting into like a real practical application to what we've learned with the songs we sing. You know, they should have lyrics. Shouldn't we say that? Yeah, it's already a given. You already know that. But we should establish that fact. They should have lyrics. It's not just instrumental hour. That there's a reason that every psalm has words, has lyrics. It's not just musical notes. Every song sung in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5 has lyrics, and they're theologically rich lyrics. They're significant. They reflect on God's character, God's deeds, and they call us to respond. And even when you're not singing along, like if you're listening to a choir or to some special music, as you hear those words, the truth, it should, you should meditate on them in your heart, and that's what's going to produce the fire of worship in you. The truth fills your heart and produces worship in the heart. And that's what God wants. That's that's how it works. And it should go without saying that we measure songs by their lyrics. In the church, we're not going to sing secular songs. They might be catchy. They might sound great. But they're not going to facilitate this type of worship, right? That they don't fit. Yes, you could evoke all those same emotions with those secular songs. You could make you feel really good and high on emotions, but that's, that's not worship. Devoid of truth, it's not worship. You need spirit and truth. Not trying to say that every song we sing needs to be a recital of the Apostles' Creed. Not trying to say that either. You know, some songs can be quite simple. They focus on just maybe one attribute of God in a poetic way, and that, that's great. We want some songs that are simple enough to be sung by a child, understood by a child. There's freedom here, but here's a good rule of thumb. If your supposed worship song could be sung just as easily about a girl or a guy or whatever, it's not a worship song. I'm sorry. You know that's a trend these days. It seems like half the songs on Christian radio, they never mention God, and it sounds like they could be like a love song for a chick, for a girl. But no. It doesn't cut it. If we're to sing, we we need songs, old and new, that just take some of God's truth and communicate it to our hearts in a special way with a great tune behind it with musical excellence, communicating it to our heart. That will produce meaningful worship to God. I wish only more churches understood this, studied this passage, got it right, followed Christ's guidelines for true worship then we'd see a lot less confusion and division in the worship wars. People have divided over such the wrong things, but we want that truth-informed, heart-driven worship, spirit and truth. That's what God prioritizes. So let's, let's major on what God majors on and minor on what God minors on, spirit and truth being first and foremost. Hopefully this principle from Christ will guide all that we do. Well, as a closing thought, With all this emphasis on on truth this morning, I I hope you don't get the impression that worship looks like a bunch of robots reciting truth. That's also not, not not the deal. I want you to see the fundamental nature of the truth. Yes, that's what sets apart, you know, true from false. It is the truth. It's a truth that changes our hearts and informs our hearts. So it has a fundamental role to play. Yeah, we get that now. Hopefully you get that. 
But the next question is, what is the result of heart worship? Or put another way, where do emotions fit in? Where does my personal experience fit into this whole nature of worship, true worship, heart worship? Seems like there should be some place, right? But where and how much? To what degree? Are there, is, what does the Bible say about that? The, the role of emotions and experience in worship, for better, for worse, right or wrong. Yes, we get it. True worship, it originates in the heart. But does it end in the heart? Well, yeah. come back next week and you'll find out. Let's pray. Lord, it's our delight to study your word. And by it, we get to know you better. You are a God of truth who values the truth above all because it's you. It's just you. That's how you reveal yourself. You hate any distortion of yourself, of your salvation. These are the greatest sins we can commit against you to distort, to lead people astray from the truth, stealing their knowledge of God or their their understanding of the gospel. Apart from your word, though, we would have no complete knowledge of the truth of you. We would be quite lost and and wandering around blind still. So we thank you for revealing the truth. In your word, in your son, we have the truth. We have beheld the truth in our hearts by your grace when we came to faith in Christ the Savior. You made the truth known to us and, and we have submitted to the truth. We now bow to you and your truth in our hearts. And as we are reminded of that truth, as we take it in again as the coal is, is shoveled in it just brings us back alive we are reminded of of how magnificent you are the glories of our god his works his deeds he created this entire universe and then he he can recreate us he can give us new birth and salvation we have an amazing god that we serve and as we're reminded of these things if we're alive then our response will be worship and lord we want to get that worship right in spirit and truth exalting you all times. May we do that now with loud voices, but with the right hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.